This is the Santita Jackson Show. Welcome to the Santita Jackson Show, WCPT 820, the nation's largest progressive talk radio station, AM 950 Radio, the voice of progressive Minnesota. Happy MLK Day, everybody. What does the Martin Luther King holiday mean to you? It was not an easy, easy, easy uh, list. In fact, uh, when you look at uh, Stevie Wonder's song, that was really almost at the end of that struggle. John Conyers, a congressman from Detroit, all by himself, Pastor Vicki Johnson, as you know, just a few days after the assassination of Dr. King. Dr. King was not the most hated man in America. He boldly walked to the well of the U.S. House of Representatives and said, we need to honor this man. It needs to be a national holiday. And every single year, he went to the well and did the same thing. People thought it was a really a fruitless effort. But then Stevie Wonder, as Stevie Wonder often does, uh, said, you know, John Conyers, I want to help you make this happen. He had a hit record, and it was, in many respects, a game changer. But we can never, ever forget that this idea originated with John Conyers. He was all alone, and he did not mind because he loved Dr. King, and indeed Dr. King endorsed him when he ran for Congress in the early 60s, so... Much love to John Conyers in a very special way today. And thank you, Stevie Wonder, for joining John Conyers and making this holiday a reality. I'm Santita Jackson. We're going to be talking about Dr. King's legacy today, the use and misuse of it. I'm going to be with Pastor Vicki Johnson. We're going to talk in just a couple of minutes about his legacy, what it really, really, really is. It's now become the day of volunteerism. No, that wasn't what Dr. King was talking about. He was talking about a core, a complete restructuring of our values, about our values, not just having black and white and brown and yellow and red children be together. No, no, no. It was about defeating materialism and militarism and racism and all of the things that make us smaller as human beings. So we've got a lot to talk about today, and I want to find out from you what the MLK holiday means to you, how you will be commemorating his life, legacy, and work. So we're going to have Congressman Jonathan Jackson with us today. And Congressman Jackson is Dr. King's godson. Yes, 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 yes. And then uh, we're going to have a, Attorney Daryl Jones, who's going to talk about the crown jewel, as Dr. King called it, of the civil rights movement, which was the vote. And we're going to have Dwight McKee giving his reflections on the Chicago campaign that got Dr. King to Chicago um, and the forces that pushed him out. Black establishment, Mayor Daly, it's going to be a fascinating discussion, everybody. Got a lot to talk about. So let's get to it. Let's get to Chicago. It's going to be a very nice day, 45 degrees and rain. Uh, Minneapolis, St. Paul, 37 degrees and rain. In the NFL, well, guess what? I think the bull, the Bills are on a roll, everybody. Thirty-four to thirty-one over the Dolphins. After talking with Demar Hamlin, it seems like they've had a spark of excitement and um, and inspiration. The Bengals twenty-four, the Ravens seventeen, the Giants thirty-one, the Vikings twenty-one. That kind of wraps it up for the wild card round in the NBA. The Bulls one thirty-two, the Warriors one eighteen, the Jazz will be playing the Timberwolves tonight, and in the NHL, both Chicago and the Minnesota teams have a night off, which is 
living out the, the calling upon his life to, to teach us how Jesus wanted us to be and how he wanted to, to create this beloved community. And so um, you got involved in the movement. You're just on the heels of his death. After, you know, many people don't realize, Justin, we'll be talking with Dwight McKee about it, just what a hostile environment Dr. King encounters here in Chicago. Um, why did you get involved? Um, Gloria Singer, that you were a stellar student, what pulled you in? Well, you know, it. I was just so moved by the things that Dr. King was doing. I grew up in Hyde Park. So I grew up in a community that was for social justice. Not, that's not what it was called back then. And for change. And so I was always involved going to freedom schools and, and things of that sort. My family, on the other hand, did not want me to get involved. My family felt like Dr. King was a troublemaker at that time. And um, but. I was just a little rebel, and so I got involved anyway and uh, became a very early member of Operation Breadbasket to carry out the legacy and the dream of Dr. King. And yes, he was a theologian and a preacher first. If you will recall, he said, I just want to do God's will. Just want to do God's will. I just want to do God's will. And that's what he did. Did it in very um, difficult circumstances, especially here in Chicago. But he just wanted to do God's will. Amen to that. And we will be talking about that today. And I think that that, uh, Pastor Johnson, is a lesson for all of us. Just to do God's will. That, That is the highest ambition you can have. Just to do God's will, not your way, but God's way. And so, Pastor Johnson, I want to thank you for being with us today because we're reminding us of what really our earthly mission is, which is to do God's will. And he said, if I'm the last person in the room standing on nonviolence, standing with God, so be it. And bless his heart. Bless his heart. Bless his heart. When he was killed, when they autopsied, autopsied, autopsied him, they found that his heart uh, was aged. He had the heart of an old man. He had carried so much. God bless him. But boy, oh boy, rejoicing in heaven. I know sitting at the right hand of God and Jesus. What a great man. We thank God for MLK today. And we thank God. I cannot call John Conger's name enough because when it was a popular thing to do, he called for a holiday, and he did it every single year that was at the top of his list. And so as we look at, as we look at Stevie Wonder and this wonderful song, which is reach, which is change, it's like the Black Happy Birthday song for all of us. Right. We have been mindful of the fact that this started with John Conyers. I love you, Pastor Vicki Johnson. I'll see you at the Lutheran School of Theology at the University of Chicago this afternoon. At at 5500, um, 1100 East 55th Street, 55th and University. All right. All right. All right. All right. Love you, Dr. Johnson. We have got Dr. Shanina. Oh, absolutely. We've got Dr. Shanina Knighton with us today. Uh, Infection Preventionist. Indeed, she leads the the largest grouping of infection preventionists and epidemiologists in the world. And we have been talking about 
Preventing infection. Preventing infection. That is so key. Hand hygiene and all of those things. As we move into this year, as we've as we've been looking at what uh, RSV, the flu, and COVID, and all of these other things. Uh, what do you? What are we missing in this health discussion? Dr. Knighton, what, what are we missing that you want us to, that you want us to think about? I want us to think about what we're eating. So when I say what it is that we're eating, I've emphasized before that when you are not well, you should nourish your body to be well. It is natural that when you are ill, you crave sugar. And studies can't uncover, like let's say, or they talk about why this happens. And I'm not going to get into that deep. But typically people crave junk food when they're sick. However, eating foods that are low in nutrients but high in sugar, further, it makes the immune system weaker and it makes you sicker before you can naturally recover and get better. So when you say what kind of sugar, that would mean sugars that are added, we're not talking about the ones that would come from your fruits and vegetables. That would mean sugar that, let's say you have a ginger ale or a can of pop. Um, let's say you do five cough drops or let's say ten cough drops. really could be five, though. Five um, each cough drop contains five grams of sugar. Seventy-five grams of sugar just within itself lowers the immune system for five hours. So that one more time. Wait, wait, wait. While we put pop, because I have popped a lot of cough drops before, don't do it anymore. But say that how 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 long does sugar depress refined sugars depress your system, your immune system? For five hours. And so to your point, for every cough drop, which is five grams, imagine you sitting up there, cough drops are soothing your throat. You know, because they got the menthol effect. And so you have popped, let's say, 10 within a three, four-hour period. Yes, your throat might feel better, but you're still going to be sicker because your body is going to take longer to recover because the sugar is preventing your body from making a faster recovery. So when people eat pastries, when they say, oh, I'm going to drink coffee because it'll make me feel better. And when I say coffee, not just black coffee, but let's say we decide on a caramel macchiato, you know, which has, let's say, 35 grams of sugar. And then you say, I'm going to have a pastry with it. Yes, it's a temporary benefit, so you think, but those useless calories end up impacting your immune system negatively, that's making it very hard for it to heal. So what do I tell people to do? I tell them to go back to the alphabet. When we think about vitamins A, B, C, D, and E, they all have powerful properties with being able to increase our body's response to illness. So what does that look like? That means consuming your onions. That means consuming ginger. That means consuming oranges, you know, or citruses, which we know are high in vitamin C. Many people may downplay eating or say they don't they don't feel like it. But what they do is is they naturally go towards the unhealthy foods opposed to the healthy ones that are going to help them recover. 
And so your palate is going to crave things that you do not want because overall you're just not feeling well. So my recommendations are is to eat well while you're not feeling well in order for you to make a fast recovery. It also means getting plenty of rest. Rest or sleep just within itself are things that you cannot cheat. And for some reason, people may say, okay, well, if I sleep for five hours today, but I normally get eight hours, then I'm going to be good. Well, eventually, your body is going through this stress response. So when you start to get sleep, sometimes that's why people crash. Or imagine having like a whole bunch of deadlines and you've been working very, very hard and under stress. And the minute that that project is over or that event is over, you're like, oh, my gosh, how did I get sick? It's because that stress response built up and it lowered your immune system. And when it had a chance to release, nine times out of ten, you did not have something to relieve the stress threshold or the proper food and the proper sleep in order to be able to balance your body out. So I know I was telling you before, Santita, that whenever I know that I'm up under stress for work, I make sure I get extra exercise. I also make sure that I stay away from those sugary drinks, such as wines, um, sweet wines, because I'm a sweet wine drinker. I stay away from those things because I know that it's going to work against me if my body is already up under a tremendous amount of stress. So what this comes down to when you ask what can people do that is not talked about, it is making sure that you are aware of your decisions, aware of your circumstances, and asking how can I better position my body even up under the stress of work, up under the stress of let's say maybe having compromised health to other illnesses or compromised health because you've come across COVID, flu, the common cold, or even have a child that has RSV that may be stressed out about recovering. That's why they say when people pass away or when people get ill, it's nice to have someone there to look after you because nine times out of ten, the things that we should be doing more of are the things that we let go. We let go of eating. How many times are we sick and we say, you know, because someone passed away or someone, you know, it's not doing well, and we're so busy focused on them that we don't focus on ourselves. But I'm going to continue to remind people, be the CEO of your health, and remember that you can't take care of somebody else if you're not taking care of yourself. And reminding people about refined sugar, everybody, reminding people, I about Dr. Atkins, who stood almost by himself. Everyone talks about keto and low-carb, high-protein. Well, he really pioneered that. And what he ended up doing was taking him. And you know what happened about mm, 20 years ago, Dr. Knighton? He, as he was leading, as the World Health Organization said, we're going to campaign against obesity. You know what happened? You know who lobbied against that program? Who? Oh. The sugar lobby. U.S. sugar lobby. Oh, I can believe it. Oh, I can believe it. It's just, it's unbelievable. I've got about 15 seconds. It's just unbelievable. But you, and you keep going back to refined white sugar. 15 seconds, they belong to you. So refined white sugar is going to be your white rice. It's going to be your, um, 
your white bread. It's going to be pastries. It's going to be candy. It's going to be anything that has been stripped of its nutrients, of its brands, of its grains, of anything that would have allowed it to be in its natural state for the purposes of it having longer shelf life, for the purposes of them trying to stretch ingredients so that way they can make more. And so these are things that literally are useless to your body in terms of helping, but they can harm you. Everybody, please take care of yourselves because, you know, you can know what you want. <laughs> you can take all the pills you want. If you do not take care of yourself, you got to get these medicines something to work with, everybody. The presumption is that the baseline of your health is good. Hey, Dr. Nina is her handle. Ask H-E-Y-D-R-N-I-N-A. You want to get with her and follow her because she has got some great information for you. I've been telling people to make like, pull out their phones and start looking you up over the past few days. At H-E-Y-D-R-N-I-N-A. At Hey, Dr. Nina. Coming up, Dwight McKee, as we talk about the Chicago campaign that brought Dr. King to Chicago and the forces that ran him out. And yet, he stayed, stayed back with me on the Santita Jackson Show on MLK Day in just a few minutes. Because facts matter. You're listening to WCPT 820. We can change the world, change the world. This is the Santita Jackson Show. Welcome, welcome back to the Santita Jackson Show on MLK Day. Indeed, um, this is a holiday that was first brought into our consciousness, brought into the well of the House of Representatives by the late, great congressman. John Conyers, popularized by the happy birthday song of Stevie Wonder, who decided to join with John Conyers. He said, you know, John Conyers, Congressman Conyers, you're right. We need to do something. So I'm going to use my talent to elevate your efforts. And so we just thank God for that combination and all of the people who worked to make this holiday a reality. Uh, But who was Dr. King and why did he come to Chicago in particular? What happened when he was here? Let's demythologize this great, great icon. And I think it's important for us to demythologize him and to understand who he really was. Because we need to understand that in real time, he was hated. In real time, increasingly, there were very few pulpits that would open themselves to them. Famously, Reverend Clay Evans of the Fellowship Missionary Baptist Church, I was pastor emeritus and founder. Um, when he opened his pulpit to him there daily, because he still hasn't finished building his new church. This was the hottest church in town. Wouldn't let him finish building his church. And, and for years, he could not get a bank to pay attention to him. Eventually, Reverend Jackson, who, as my mother said, they didn't even own the home themselves, had to co-sign on the loan uh, to get Fellowship Missionary Baptist Church, the modern edifice, built. Such was uh, the hatred of Dr. King. So we need to talk about that. More than 55% of black people disapproved of him. They felt that he was a troublemaker. 
uh, more than 70% of white Americans disapproved of him, felt he was a troublemaker. That is the context in which he lived. So let's talk about that with Dwight McKee, particularly as we look at what happened in Chicago, because that Chicago campaign, Dwight, it appears, was pivotal. First of all, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, what does this holiday mean to you? How do you think we should commemorate it? Uh, well, the holiday to me is very symbolic of the a life of a great man and his contribution to the world, to humanity. If it were not for Dr. King, chances are there would not be a, a United States left because he was able to transform the anger and the oppression of a people into a positive, non-peaceful protest and was able to take violence off the table and overly, overall, to avoid a civil war. If you look at what's happening in the dynamics of politics today, without the presence of a Dr. King to mitigate a lot of this anger, you see the country on the brink of a civil war. And so, to me, Dr. King is pretty close to being the greatest American. Mm-hmm. Well, that is what Tavis Smiley has said. He's the greatest American ever produced, and indeed, Peter Jennings, uh, the great um, journalist from ABC, uh, said he is at the vanguard of the new founding fathers, of the new America, everybody. What do you think about that? Call us at 773-763-9278. What do you think of his legacy? Is his legacy a dream? Um, was, it a rea- was it the courage to face realities that were crushing people? Uh, militarism, racism, materialism. No one wants to deal with the fact that he was anti-materialism, that he was anti-imperialism. When we talk about volunteering, do something nice for somebody, no, 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 no. He, he said, why don't America, why don't you take your foot off the necks of nations that want to be free? Why don't you do that? Why don't you, why are you a thing-oriented society? Why don't you want to spiritually uplift? Let's go back to Chicago when he came here. Paint the picture for us. Why did he come to Chicago, and what happened when he got here, Dwight? Well, he came in. Uh, you have to understand what Chicago was going through. It was the apex of the Great Migration, where blacks, about a million, had left the South, come over here, who had gotten involved in industries that they had no options to get involved in down south. And so coming out of you at the Pullman Porters, you had the meat cutters, uh, you had real community control of young entrepreneurs who were just basic business guys. You had teachers, you had a, a self-contained black community. Uh, and coming out of those industries were unions. You had the the uh, meat cutters union. You had the Pullman porters, and those unions were trying to get better arrangements with the people who they had to work for. Coming out of the riots of 1919, there was a real quest for some black equality, 
also coming out of that was a commitment to segregate the community so that whites would not have to deal with blacks uh, on a social level. And so all of the social institutions reflected that. The churches were all black. The schools were all black. The um, But not just black and equal, black and unequal, because the resources of the, of the city was always redirected to white people. And so because of that, the housing was became inferior and the education became inferior. I grew up in with school in time of the Willis wagon where because they didn't want us to go to white schools and because we were locked in the black community, they literally put bonds uh, bonds out that we went to those schools for four hours a day from eight to four. And then that school emptied and went from uh, first school went from eight to four. Second went from, I mean, eight to 12. Second shift went from 12 to four with 40 and 50 people in the classroom. And so many people like Al Raby and Coco thought enough was enough. So they began to organize demonstrations to address the, the miseducation of the Negro issue, to address the labor issue, to address the total inequality and the segregation in the city. Uh, guys from the labor movement, like Addie Wyatt, who was a labor union uh, leader, and her husband, Claude Wyatt, and Charlie Hayes, and that crowd kind of really teamed up with Al Ray and, 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 and Mighty Dot King here to deal with a myriad of issues. One was the education issue and the inequality in education. Secondly was the housing issue. And Dr. King actually started having meetings and marches on open housing and moved to the west side himself to bring highlight to that issue. So it was a very comprehensive movement. Uh, everybody pretty much was on board other than the politicians and the black churches because many of the preachers were on Daly's payroll. Mm. And Daly had the edict out that he, they would have no dealings with Dr. King. And so you had to be a very special kind of guy. And there were a few preachers who rose above that. Our pastor, Clay Evans, was one of them. Thurman was one. There were some, you know, revolutionary preachers who did get involved. But for the most part, they closed the pulpits, and the politicians kind of rose up against them because they were still on the plantation. The black establishment, if you will, like many of the black business leaders and things like that, and people like that. Um, so where did you come in? Where did you, I mean, because you, uh, I know Reverend, Reverend Jesse Jackson was the youth pastor uh, at Fellowship and um, had been working with Reverend James Bevel and, uh, while he was a student at the University of Chicago in seminary. Uh, where did you come in, and where did you and all of these young people, Mickey Warren and people like that, where did you all come in, and why? Well, 
Well, we really started in the freedom movement. We started when uh, Coco, Coco, when they began to have marches on education, they had freedom schools that when I was uh, in grammar school that we would go to to really learn black history and black culture. Then, ironically enough, two things happened with me. One is I grew up and my family grew up in fellowship. And so Reverend Jackson came in as the youth pastor and guys like Mickey Warren and, and Michael Shaw and Judy and all of the guys who were involved, Billy Jones, in uh, our church got caught up in the spirit of a breadbasket because Reverend Jackson, being our youth pastor, and foreman being the, the new director of Breadbasket, between he and Reverend Evans, they really kind of drew us in the movement. The other thing for me is I ended up going to Finger High School at that time, which was 95% white. Hmm. And it was the children of the white Pullman group. And they were very, very racist. They had had the Pullman riots. And so they were very hostile to us. And so we had to, for the sake of survival, start a student movement in high school. And we had walkouts and demonstrations. And it was really a major, major, major initiative that we had in high school. Because back then, the whole South Corridor was white. From 99th Street to Argyle Gardens from the lake all the way over to, to Halstead was all white. And so the Pullman, the Pullman crowd, so we were here to fight against them. So I started leading demonstrations there. Reverend Jackson saw me lead demonstrations at Finger and asked me, he and Reverend, ja- uh, Reverend Evans asked me if I would start a student federation movement and bring that movement into Breadbasket. And so young guys like me and Steve and Vicki Johnson and Kay, we then, who are all student leaders, then took those movements into Breadbasket, and then we spun it off with our own youth division, and uh, I became the chair of the youth division. And so we then became really almost a movement within a movement to uh, work with those issues that affected young people, which was not rare back then because there were student movements all over the country trying to and guys like SNCC and Jim Bevel and Diane Nash and the guys at Tennessee State and A&T. They themselves, they were a little older than us, but they themselves took the initiative to become freedom fighters and had sit-ins and walkouts and and really became part of the revolution, the the, the heart of the revolution. Was this a popular thing to do? I I think it's important for us to uh, look at Dr. King as he was perceived in real time. Well, what Dr. King's great gift was, he could interpret the uh, the pain of the oppression, and had a great gift to be able, an oratory gift to be able to unite people around a single message. 
Dr. King was really very dimensional in that he was the grandson of a pastor and the son of a pastor and had been influenced by those men of his of the early generations. He was influenced by Marcus Garvey. In fact, the Montgomery Improvement Association was named after Garvey's movement. He was influenced by Thurman, Howard Thurman. He was influenced by uh, President of Boyhouse. He was a multidimensional guy. You do him a disservice when you try to reduce him to a speech because he was so, he was intersectional. He was dealing with colonialism in the third world. He was influenced by Nehru. He would then spent five weeks in India. Uh, was very influenced by the uh, the Quakers. He was not just a guy who made a speech about a dream. He was really abreast with what was happening on the international scene and the colonial scene and spoke to that. So he was intergenerational, he was intersectional, and he dealt with labor. He dealt with uh, the farmers. He dealt with Hispanics and the Indians. He, He looked at oppressed people as a collective and saw his role as to try to bring justice to the disenfranchised. And so when you talk about Dr. King, even as a civil rights guy, you limit his exposure and his impact. This guy was a cosmopolitan man of the world who understood how the world operated. When you reduce his service to a single speech and you teach our kids how to make that speech without giving them context in the dimensionality, of Dr. King, you do him a disservice. One of the things, benefits of growing up with Reverend Jackson and growing up in Breadbasket in the movement is that it was you exposed to all kind of philosophies and all kind of uh, elements of the black community. You opposed, you was exposed to sociology and theology and politics and religion, and music. And so it was very holistic. So you became an organizer rather than a public speaker. And I think that's what's lacking with these young kids today, is they turn them into public speakers about a speech, I had a dream, rather than make them dimensional so they understand the depth and the, and the width of what they're dealing with. And they can then organize. Along and understanding problems. Stand by, Dwight. I want to bring in Candace, who's calling us from Texas. Candace, what's on your mind today, my dear Candace? Good morning, my sister. How are you? My dear sister, it's wonderful hearing your voice today on King Day. Yes, ma'am. It's wonderful hearing you because actually you woke me up this morning because when I look, I say, oh, okay, well, let me, uh, Tune in and start sharing this around Texas this morning. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> it's good hearing your verse. That Dr. Candace does so much great work down in Texas and around the country. Real freedom fighter. What does this King holiday 
mean to you, as as Dwight McKee has so ably laid out, um, just the breadth and depth of Dr. King's works and and his mission. I mean, he was so much bigger than as portrayed in in the popular media now. I mean, they make him digestible, right? Right. Instead of really dealing with the Dr. King that, that was fascinated, right? Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. And see, it, it, it hit different for me because I was that child that was in that fourth grade classroom when it comes to dealing with Black History Month, right? We had to pick who we wanted to talk about for Black History. I wanted to talk about not just Martin Luther King. I wanted to talk about Reverend Jesse Jackson. I wanted to talk about Marcus Garvey. I wanted to talk about people that I've actually was able to see in action on what they've done, right? But as far as with Martin Luther King, you know, he was one of the pillars that made the U.S. as great as it is for black people, right? He was a change agent due to his vision of freedom and how we can live in a world free of discrimination. That was his essence. That was what he wanted. He took risks. He took sacrifices, fears, and consequences, which has inspired me to fight for social justice, equality, and humane treatment. Because a lot of the times before I even start a press conference, I always start with a quote from uh, Dr. Martin Luther King. And, you know, I use those ideologies um, when it comes time to where I have to put the cowboy hat on and, 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 and have to fight for our people. Because at this point right now, it, it, it's so sad that it, it's normalized to the fact, well, racism is just like, okay, this is what they're doing. All right, well, we used to it. Okay, moving on. And that's not how it should be. And what was really interesting to me was that I was scrolling on social media, and you have a lot of these young people making MLK flyers and and having him, like, it's a twerk session. They had him with a blood in his mouth. I mean, I'm like, is is really? Yes, ma'am. And uh, Robert Petillo was talking about it uh, yesterday as well. And I'm like, you know, Dr. Martin Luther King's holiday is a sacred holiday. You know what I mean? This is one of our elders whose shoulders that we stand on in order for us to move forward in his movement. But when you turn around and do a flyer with Dr. Martin Luther King with a blood in his mouth, with, talking about Dr. King twerk session and all kind of stuff, I'm like, where are we at this time now in part of our life? Where are we? This is what's happening, Rose White. Where are we? When when you see Dr. King denigrated in this way, I've got a couple of minutes. Actually, literally 90 seconds. How does that make uh, we you? We lost it turned out. What we've done is we've turned Dr. King into a, a black superhero. He eats like Santa Claus and the Easter Bunny. And we've taken the humanity out of Dr. King. And it, as a result of that, we don't really even, many in this generation don't even know how to relate to him or the effect he's had on their lives. Is that because we're so uneducated and miseducated, it's hard for them to track the fact that uh, their fathers and they themselves can work at Walmart. 
when before for Dr. King, they couldn't have those jobs that 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 some of their that that their fathers and grandfathers who were garbage men was making three and four dollars an hour. And the reason Dr. King went to Memphis is because two of them, two of the garbage men, got caught up in a dumpster and were killed. And so now they have these city jobs, these are these sanitation jobs, or they're the rap stars, or they're on MTV. When Dr. King was alive, we only had two or three black people on television. Uh, the sister from 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 Star uh, Trek. Mm-hmm. And Nichols, uh, and Julia, and uh, Amos and Andy was still on. And so they have the benefits of Dr. King's, uh, they, they, the benefits of Dr. King's uh, martyrdom without appreciation for all the effect he's had on them. And see, no connection between the, li- the lives of their living and what Dr. King and Dr. King's crowd was able to accomplish. Mm, and the work continues, everybody. This is a little bit, and you really think on the King legacy today. Stay right there, Dr. Candace. We're going to talk during this break, and then uh, Congressman Jonathan Jackson will be joining us at 7.15 Central Standard Time. He was Dr. King's godson. And then, of course, now he is a newly seated member of Congress. Uh, what part of his legacy does he plan to take with him to the U.S. House of Representatives? Back with you. The Santita Jackson Show on WCPT and AM 950 Radio on MLK Day. Back in just a minute. We can change the world, change the world, change the world. Oh, yes, we can. We can change the world, we can change the world, change the world. This is the Santita Jackson Show. everybody. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the San Peter Jackson Show, WCPT 20, the nation's largest progressive talk radio station and AM 950 radio, the voice of progressive Minnesota. I want you to join my morning stars over here on YouTube. That's right. No, it's not a mirage. I thought we're Jesse Jackson with us today. We're at the MLK breakfast at the Marriott Marquis. Paula here in Chicago is about to come up. Hold on one second, Daddy. And um, we are talking about the MLK Legacy, his life and works. We've had Dwight McKee on with this. Uh, coming on Dr. King's Godson in just a few minutes. We'll be talking with um, with Attorney Daryl Jones, Chairman of the Congress over the next Voting. So everybody, let's talk. I want you to call me at 773-763-9278-773-763 WCPT and let's get some of these headlines out the way so we can get on with the rest of the show. In Chicago, we'll have a high of 45 degrees today. There will be rain in Minneapolis, St. Paul, 37 degrees in rain. In the NFL, well, I think that Javon Hartman, who spoke with this weekend, is a parent, right? Some kind of prohibition on the rookie. Yeah. Right. He to, uh, be at, he, he was at his last pay check, but actually the, the bill started jumping from the curb. It was $3.8 million when he was due. Mm-hmm. He was, that has been a big part of the, the we must not address the big issue. 
of all those players who uh, bother. Absolutely. Well, we're going to talk about that later on in the week. Maybe tomorrow is not the next day. Maybe you can come back and talk with us about that. But stay right there, Reverend, because you will deed one of his last, of one of Dr. King's last surviving staff members. Let me get through a few of these headlines. Bill 34, the Dolphins 31 in this wild card round of the NFL playoff season. Bengals 24, the Ravens 17, the Giants 31, the Vikings 21. The NHL, NHL Minnesota and Chicago teams had the day off, and guess what? The Bulls 132, the Warriors 118. What's going on with the Warriors this year? I don't know, but I'm not mad. The Jazz and the Timberwolves, everybody, some of the headlines are as follows. It's MLK Day. This would have been Dr. King's 94th birthday. We're celebrating his birthday, commemorating his life and his works. Indeed, President Joe Biden, we had a lot of historic firsts. First president, sitting president to go to Tulsa. First sitting president to go to and speak from the pulpit of Ebenezer uh, Baptist Church, Dr. King's pulpit, where he had been the associate pastor with his father, right? Amen. And of course, we've got the storms in California. Californians are preparing for another round of rain today. Up to three inches of rainfall expected. In areas already too saturated to absorb more water, flood watches are in place for around 8 million people in coastal California in Nepal. We pray for the people of Nepal today. At least 68 people, including foreign nationals, were killed on Sunday when an aircraft down, went down in Nepal, according to government officials. A total of 72 people were on board en route from the capital, Kathmandu, to Pokhara, the, city, the country's second most popular city. The White House is facing increasing pressure, criticism, uh, for its lack of transparency related to the recent discovery of classified documents found at President Biden's personal residence and a private office from his time as vice president. The initial batch of documents was found at his former private office on November 2nd, days before the midterm elections, but not revealed to the public until last week. We will stay clued in on that story. Everybody, I want you to call us at 773-763-9278, 773-763-WCPT. Everybody, Reverend Jackson, you were, um, and Dwight, you're still with me, are you? I am. Okay, Dwight, uh, well, and Candace, I think, is still here, but we're going to welcome the congressman in a hot second. Reverend Jackson, you were, um, you went to work for Dr. King uh, when he was moving into unpopularity. Why did you, why did you make that decision? I was in seminary in Chicago, in Chicago at that time, and uh, I knew he was coming. I began to organize ministers. He was with Reverend Clemens, who was on everything, everybody at that time, such a talented man, such a good man. And uh, Dr. King came and ministers attacked him here because we left Mississippi in great numbers, like 900 been lynched, lynched in public. And Dr. Howard came here in a, in a hearse, and he was dead to get to Chicago. This is a of terror between Chicago and Mississippi. More blacks in Chicago at that time. Mississippi, the living Mississippi. The thing, it was that kind of climate. So we came eagerly and trapped in this big city machine. Like, you know, black, black commitment, oppressed black people to the also Irish machine. It, 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 that kind of thing. So I, I wanted to be a part of that struggle. I've been a part of Greensboro, North Carolina, where I was a super leader, North Carolina A&T. So this is that's what I was doing. And uh, he gave me a role to play. 
I would organize the criminal organization because they don't want blacks. Blacks in High Park, they want blacks coming across for the Street. The High Park Criminals We built the King High School. Took us three years to get the name of Dr. King. They thought thing was riot day. We didn't see that Dr. King at that time. It's kind of crazy, but we survived that too. So St. Jesus is written a lot. They have survived all this stuff. Well, amen. I mean, and indeed, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Ph.D., and you know how much black people value education. Uh, he came to you and said, a semester shy of your, getting your master's in divinity, which you eventually did finish and get. Um, I want you to come and work for me. And you said to him, are you serious? I have to say that. My wife said, don't miss this moment. Yeah, she said, Dr. King, so you and I moved to the we on the road. Six months, you know, and it's six years. So I, t- I took that as a word, and uh, it worked out for me. And it worked out for all of us, and we just thank God for you today. We're going to have Congressman Jonathan Jackson on in a hot second. Can't wait to hear his thoughts. Um, but just, I mean, Dwight McKee, I mean, just hearing these bits of history, I mean, because indeed it was uh, Reverend James Neville who, pushed for Dr. King to hire you because he saw something in you. Well, and, and Bernard Lafayette and um, uh, Bernard Lee. And would you tell me, and, and Reverend Ralph David Abernathy, Reverend Ralph David Abernathy, and, uh, what was it that people saw in, in Reverend Jackson? Because indeed, not to make it about Reverend Jackson, but the, but the movement had to continue once Dr. King left Chicago, or was pushed out of Chicago. I know that was a, a really tough campaign. Dwight, what were you? What what kept you all going? Uh, a couple of things. One was fearlessness. And in Chicago, you had to deal with racism of the Irish, who were very racist, like the Northern Ku Klux Klan. You had to deal with the gangs, who were fairly vicious. You had to deal with some politicians and some preachers who had a gangster mentality. And so you needed a certain kind of courage to be able to deal with that crowd. And your daddy, for reasons uh, only God can explain, was courageous enough to be able to go from group to group and not be daunted by them. Secondly, he was charismatic. He was a young athlete, good-looking guy, who was very astute in terms of his understanding, not just of politics, but of theology. So he was able to take the church crowd and interpret politics to them in a way that they could process and digest. And so he was able then to pull families into the movement who heretofore had been involved. And and thirdly, uh, he was a... Best and see a guy who believed in that cause and had a sense of empathy for black people. And so as he, he was able to transfer that into a real movement because different groups came to him to help him solve their problems. Now, also, there's an unseen... I hate to interrupt you, but, you know, I've got Congressman Jonathan Jackson here. No, 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 stay right here with Reverend. We're trying to do a lot of things. We've got a press conference we've got to go to. But I'm bringing Congressman Jonathan Jackson onto the phone. I wanted you to say hello to him before you go. Reverend, say hello to your son. Hey, he will be here today. 
Love you more, Dan. I appreciate you so much. And may the soul and spirit of Reverend Martin Luther King be exalted today. And we all take this moment to remember him and join his work and yours. We will not forget. We will not forget. Congressman, Congressman Jonathan Jackson, I'm so glad you're with us and so glad that um, we have the special treat of having Reverend Jackson. I mean, all these people are so glad to see you on here today. Dad, you go, hey, 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 and he is moving and grooving, and we are here at the Marriott Marquis for, um, for the Martin Luther King breakfast. And of course, we are sending our young people to college. Jonathan, excuse me, Congressman Jackson, you know, I have to train myself. Talk to me. Um, Congressman, hold on, everybody. I'm on the radio. <laughs> okay. Congressman Jackson, what does this MLK holiday mean to you? And, and he was your godfather. Um, please explain. Jonathan Luther well, Jackson. Congressman Jonathan Luther Jackson. Well, thank you, Santita. You know, I prefer the title brother over Congressman coming from you, but I will accept that. Thank you, love. Um, you know, I love you. This work. His last speech, I read it again last night. Um, I read his last sermon um, again over the weekend. And uh, in Dad's honor, our Father Reverend Jackson, who I would say was one of his apostles who was there with him at 6.01 p.m. on April 4th, and he was assassinated. What did he go to Memphis for? We have to be refocused on that. It was for economic justice. There was a dream. 63, there was a pathway towards economic justice, towards policy change or inclusion. Uh, diversity has now become more of a diversion. There is hub zone, 8A program, women's, veterans. African Americans have conspicuously been eliminated from these programs. That's where our fight is today. And if, if you will, our challenge today is even tougher because we knew where there was a circulated water fountain. We knew there was a sign that says no Negroes allowed. We knew when there was a law that said we cannot get um, access to equal high-quality public education. But now that those barriers are down, and this is what Reverend Martin Luther King had said then, now it's blurry. Uh, people have now adjusted to our schools that used to be filled with water in the pool now being empty. They have adjusted to same low property tax area, so therefore we have uh, we have fewer teachers and are under resources, and now we need to charter schools because the neighborhood public schools cannot be funded. So we have to refocus and now understand that Jim Crow, Jane Crow, have gone up into higher places, don't want to teach our history. We have a new battlefront that we have to be reengaged in, and I want people to take this not as a day of service, that's insulting, frankly. Personally, that's my own opinion. Reverend Martin Luther King had a life of service, and it just wasn't about, as my father taught me, personal salvation. It was about social salvation. So if you want to honor Reverend Martin Luther King, he's written five books. Look at what he said. Look at what he's done with his life. Politicians later on and came and said, this is a day of service. Clean up yourself. Be nice to everyone. Clean out your bathroom. Get rid of your old clothes. No, no. Policy. Where are we on voting rights? Policy. Where are we on affirmative action? Policy. 
where we're on uplifting the least of these and those that have been marginalized and left behind policy, where we're on health care and Medicare for all. Let's deal with the policies that Reverend Martin Luther King wanted to do to elevate all human beings. We're talking with Congressman Jonathan Jackson, newly seated member of Congress, 1st Congressional District of Illinois. Indeed, he is Dr. Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King's grandson. You know, you're always reminding us, Congressman Jackson, that um, that he was not just Dr. King, that he was Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King. You know, these ecclesiastical titles, they, they eclipse all others. Please explain why that's something that you continue to emphasize. Well, it's, A, it's, it's proper grammar that if you were once a cardinal and then became the pope, your title forever is the pope. If you were once a senator and became a president, a former president is always a a former president. It's your highest title. Um, if you look at the Greek word of vocal, vocation, where you get your calling from, if you have to do it grammatically and say, are you Reverend Doctor, Doctor Reverend, you stand when the Reverend comes in the room, not when the doctor comes in the room, that it's a higher calling. And this is all that his life was about. He didn't have the power of state, didn't have a gun, didn't have bullets. He just had the word of God, and he transformed our, our sociology and our theology to know that praying just wasn't being on your knees. Praying was standing on your feet and marching and trusting God's word. So I think to call him that, and I think some people subconsciously, whether they recognize it or not, uh, some forces may want to believe that it's hard to look at Reverend Martin Luther King as America's minister. When you look at his uh, statue on the mall, note that that's the only non-government official, non-general man of non-violence that's on that ball. This is a day for all ministers and all people of faith to acknowledge freedom fighters and the freedom movement around the world. So I would like to keep him in that light. And he died at 39. He was assassinated, left four children behind. He took God at his word, as his promise, and he fought to the very end, knowing the dire consequences. Where does he, where does he belong in politics? You know, you know, you have many ministers who are unwilling to take that leap uh, to to engage in the public sphere in that way. What do you say to that? I think quite a few simply may not know, may not understand, and that's our job to continue to, uh, in his tradition, Brother Dwight was articulating this well. Our father has lived it. This is a new sort of thinking, uh, praying on your on your feet, marching, not on your knees. Uh, he told us if you want to get people off your back, simply stand up. So we have to take that radical idea that let's bring heaven down to earth. Let's do something. Let's not, like, punt, pass, and kick the ball up into the future that we do have responsibility. And we have that level of responsibility. We can make change. And he did in his lifetime. We have so many more resources today. I think there are a lot of good ministers that do great things that every year we have to come back to why do we consecrate this moment? Why do we commemorate these events so we can talk about, read from, quote from Reverend Martin Luther King's words himself. Don't let all the commentators and uh, people that have ulterior motives read King's word. Talk to people that march with Reverend Martin Luther King. Yesterday I had the pleasure of going to uh, Reverend A.R. Leake's funeral chapel. Um, I was honored 
and I felt obligated to do it. He drove Reverend Martin Luther King. I had the honor to talk with Reverend Otis Small Sr. He worked and lived with Reverend Martin Luther King. But the honor of being with my father, who stood and marched with Reverend Martin Luther King. Champions that lived and worked with Reverend Martin Luther King are still alive. Talk to them and let us exalt them, those apostles that actually did the march. Now it's getting, there's other people we should talk to now. Talk to the to the firsthand sources and the change makers. Indeed, Congressman Jackson, because it's about more than marching, is it not? Absolutely. It's marching, which is very important. It's the policy, those that are going to implement it and, and write it. It's the activists that are going to uh, enforce it and correct it. So this is the day for activists to be proud. This is the day for ministers to be proud that ministers, let us remind them, change this, the course of this country. Ministers found this way out. And Reverend Martin Luther King was a gift to the uh, America and the world. He came through us, through our culture. And so now let the world honor him as such. Well, now you, um, are in a new space. You are now in Congress, and indeed it was a member of Congress, John Conyers, or I keep calling his name today, Congressman Jackson, my brother, Jonathan, uh, because it was he who stood in the well of the U.S. House of Representatives all alone, looking like he was, well, he, he stood for one of the most unpopular men, most unpopular man in America, and said, we need to honor him. We need to have we need to enshrine his memory in a holiday, honoring him. He did this in 1968, and he did it year after year after year. And then Stevie Wonder said, you know what, let me help you. Let me help you. And, and he's established an office in Washington to work with Congressman Congress, with Teresa Cropper, who became Teresa Cropper-Kyles. Um, talk to us. What do you do? This is where you see congressmen, you see elected officials doing that great work. We can't forget John Conyers today, Jonathan. Right. The framing of the legislation um, in 1968 after, after uh, Reverend Martin Luther King had died came from Representative Conyers out of Detroit. So it was the activists doing all the great things on the outside. It was the musicians that were above and around us. It was the ministers that brought this to a titular head that could lead our people. All these forces came together. I can't say one was more important than the other. But Representative Conyers went to the floor, went to the well, proposed the legislation to uh, bring us this day, and here we are. And so he's to be commended. And it took 15 years for us to... Uh, to get this legislation. Contrast that with what happened in India is uh, after Mahatma Gandhi was killed, a national fund was created with hundreds of millions of dollars, a national day of reconciliation, a national day was created for a holiday. All these things took place. But America took 15 years of fighting. And the last point I want to leave you with, Santita, was the uh, there was the federal holiday that came to being in 1983, ultimately, under Reagan. But it essentially wasn't enforced. So states could do what they wanted. Counties could do what they wanted. Municipalities. And people didn't know whether to best honor the life of Reverend Martin Luther King by having a, um, having a uh, uh, go to school, clean up, what to do. And it wasn't until we went to New York City 
my father, Reverend Jesse Jackson, and asked Chairman Dick Grosso of the New York Stock Exchange and Sandy Weil of Citicorp, why isn't the markets why aren't the markets closed on King's Day? And they said, well, you know, we hadn't thought about it. The New York Stock Exchange is a private member organization. We haven't thought about it. And ultimately, uh, Chairman Dick Grosso at that time said, let us poll our members and we'll get right back to you, Reverend Jackson. The New York Stock Exchange unanimously agreed its members privately. No legislation. Just asking the question, <laughs> appealing to their conscience, not even having to explain it. It was so obvious that it was wrong. They came back and unanimously agreed to close the market. That is why the banks are now closed. That is why the banks are now closed. That's why this day is a holiday, in fact, and not just in words. So I hope, uh, and, so, and, and, and so, Dad, I can't thank you enough for uh, continuing his work, taking it to Wall Street, which is its natural evolution, and that's what we have to focus on. How do we create sustainable, uh, long-lasting economic change? We can't look up year after year and have the shortest life expectancy, the highest level of employment, the most discrimination. No, we've got to turn this around. So I'm uh, willing and able to do my part. And I'm proud to say that I was able to talk to my friend Martin Luther King Jr. this morning, the third, and I told him, your father, you know, um, his spirit also lives on the hill and has another office. Those civil rights people, workers, activists, have another office on the hill. Mm. Amen. Congressman Jonathan Jackson, I love you, my dear brother. I love you more. And please come to the Rainbow Push Breakfast. I'll be speaking this morning, and I'll see you in just a moment, Dad. Keep it up, Reverend Dwight. <laughs> okay. Back with you. Bye-bye. Peter Jackson, show in just okay. a moment. WCPT 820, Chicago's progressive talk, where facts matter. We can change the world. This is the Santita Jackson Show. Hey, everybody. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Santita Jackson Show. I'm down at the Marriott Marquis here in Chicago, WCPT 820, the nation's largest progressive talk radio station. NAM 950 Radio, the voice of Progressive Minnesota. Of course, my morning stars on the Santita Jackson Show YouTube channel and on the Santita Jackson and Friends Facebook page. Everybody, we are going to be down here today. We're down here. Judge Greg Mathis, Dr. Julianne Malvo, Emmy Award-winning Dream Girl, uh, Sheila Wee Ralph, and so many as we uh, raise money to send it to college. But Congressman Jonathan Jackson will be speaking. Mayor Lori Lightfoot, and so many people will be here today. Congresswoman Dalia Ramirez will be here today, uh, commemorating the life and works of Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King. We've got Attorney Daryl Jones joining us to talk about the crown jewel of the civil rights movement, the crown jewel, the vote, and um, what we must do, the threat that it's under today, and what we must do to protect it. But before Dwight gets off of this show, and Dr. D, before you leave this show and head on down here to the Marriott Marquis, you wanted to share something with us. Yeah, one of the things your father's not, never really been given credit for is his impact on the King Center. 
when we in about 68, 69, right after Dr. King got killed, his family, his wife and his mother and father had a retreat down in Atlanta to figure out how to honor Dr. King and how you could inter- uh, institutionalize his work. And your doctor, your father laid out the whole profile and the whole strategy for the Dr. King Center at that retreat. And uh, it became a real American institution. And your daddy, he had a whole strategy that he had put together around that. But it's really kind of been lost in history. But he, it, it most a lot of that was his idea. Mm, the King Center for Nonviolent Culture. The fact of have just having an institution that's attributed to Dr. King that could teach nonviolence as a concrete institution, a lot of that was his idea. I just happened to be at the retreat with him. But it was, mm. and the young whole staff was there. And he, he had the real vision for that. But he's not really been given a lot of credit for that. Well, you know, and you know him, he doesn't care about the credit. He wants the work to be done. And for us to really understand the importance of nonviolence, what's your closing thought before you go? Me? Oh, I just, yeah. I think that we have to have to really make a point for our children to be Santa Claus, Dr. King. And, and, and we can't turn him into a personality uh independent of the context he operated in. And so when we teach our children how to make a, I had a dream speech, that's a good thing. But that's like teaching Michael Jordan to shoot a free throw. I mean, you have to really teach them the context that Dr. King came out of and the dimensionality of that movement for us to be able to transfer that from generation to generation. And so whether I'm, I'm happy when I hear these kids win these con- these oratorical contests, we really do them a disservice when we reduce Dr. King to one speech. Dr. King was a cosmopolitan. He was a, a, a Renaissance man and understood the ways of the world. Wrote five books and understood, could teach at any, any university in the world. Hmm. Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, and thank you, Dr. D. Dwight McKee. I will see you shortly, of course, this afternoon. I have the honor of sharing a um, uh, sharing with you on a panel, um, along with uh, with June uh, Porter and others. It's going to be a wonderful panel at the University of Chicago Lutheran School of Theology. Um, Reverend Reginald Sharp, our pastor from the Fellowship Missionary Baptist Church will be conducting a worship service, but we will be on this panel at 1.30. We're very excited about that. But first, we've got this breakfast here, the Marriott Marquis Push Excel program at 8 a.m. Everybody, come on down here. Even if you haven't gotten a ticket, come on. It's going to be a wonderful, wonderful breakfast. It's going to be a wonderful get-together. Thank you, Dwight McKee. We welcome to the show uh, the brilliant chairman of the Transformative Justice Coalition. Uh, probably our leading, he and, uh, he and Barbara Arnwine, who show you can catch on WOL every Tuesday at 12 noon Eastern Standard Time. They're leading advocates, really, for voting rights in America today. Uh, he's the chairman of the Transformative Justice Coalition, the organization that she founded. 
And um, Dr. King, Attorney Jones, called the Voting Rights Act and our, the vote, the securing of the vote, the crown jewel of the civil rights movement. Why? Well, good, good morning, Cynthia, and happy Martin Luther King Jr. Day uh, to you. You know, I think that when Dr. King was referring to the uh, civil rights movement and the right to vote as the crown jewel of that movement, what he was uh, identifying was that the essence of the power of the people, the essence of the power of citizenship, the essence of being able to, to stand up to any wrong came through the power of the vote. And it is through the power of the vote that here in the United States, we would be able to elect representatives who would be able to have the power to pass legislation to protect uh, the very citizens and, and the very basic civil rights uh, of, of the African-American, of, of black people in the country. And, and it proved out to be true, right? Because if we look at the power of the vote and at the crown jewel of the civil rights movement, it's because of the power of the vote that we now have the anti-lynching bill. You know, it's because of the power of the vote that we're able to elect judges that are of fair mind in treating African-Americans and everyone uh, that come before them. It's because of the power of the vote, you know, that we have electing, uh, elected prosecutors who are going to uh, treat everyone fairly and equally, and that they don't, we elect other prosecutors. But all of that stems from that crown jewel, that, that power of the vote, and, and uh, getting people to the ballot box to be able to elect people that will best represent their interests. That's the reason why I believe that Dr. King referred to uh, the right to vote as that crown jewel, because it is the embodiment of the power to be able to change uh, things that are wrong and that we identify as not being correct and in the best interest uh, of, of, uh, of us as American citizens. What? what? are the direct threats to our vote right now? You know, it's really interesting. You know, this morning, one of the things I, I love to do is to go back on, on, uh, on the King Day and, and listen to his Give Us the Ballot speech. And if you go back and you'll listen to that speech, you'll find that a lot of the things that he's raising in that Give Us the Ballot uh, speech are things that we're facing today. You know, for instance, today uh, we're facing situations where we have folks with guns that are at ballot boxes and drop boxes that are trying to dissuade uh, black and brown people from coming to, to vote. Today, you know, we have people that are going around passing legislation trying to make it more difficult for, uh, for black and brown people to be able to vote, closing polling places in black and brown neighborhoods and forcing them to go distances uh, to be able to cast their votes. You know, all of this we see happening today. We see them not only closing the places today, but in addition to that, saying that we're going to form these long lines because we're not going to give uh, those that are going to those areas to vote the sufficient number of voting machines that are necessary to make the process a quick process. So we're trying to, they're trying to suppress the vote that way and then saying on top of that, don't give them food and water while they're waiting in line for those three or four hours to get to those few, a few machines. That's many of the ways that we see the vote being suppressed today. That's many of the things that, uh, that I would submit that Dr. King was talking about when he ended give us the ballot speech that, you know, don't put us in a position where you make it difficult for us to vote. Just give us the ballot. Give us the same rights as everyone else. 
and we will elect people of good will, of good intention, of good mind. You know, that, I think, are the challenges. Uh, th- those are the challenges that we're facing today, and I think they mirror some of the challenges uh, that were being faced during Dr. King's Give Us the Speech, Give Us the Ballot Speech. Hmm. Everybody, I want you to call me at 773-763-9278, 773-763-WCPT. What does the MLK holiday mean to you? Candace, are you still there, Dr. Candace? Yes, ma'am, I'm here. I, I didn't realize that you, that you were holding. Um, what about the vote in Texas? You know, we, um, you have, it's on the books that every... 18-year-old high school seniors should be registered to vote. Why is that not enforced? You know what? I'm going to tell you why it's not enforced. It is not enforced by design. Because y'all have to keep in mind, Texas is like a republic of its own. It's like we, our fight. It's the republic of Texas, Candace. I'm telling you, it's like our fight is harder than any other state. When I tell you, the governor that we have that I call him Mr. Hot Wheels because I don't call him governor, um, uh, basically this is it's just it's, it's asinine that they have all of these things in place. Like you don't need a license to carry a gun, but you have to go through all of these obstacles in order to vote. I mean, it's not even encouraged in high school because I have a daughter that's in high school, pit grade. Um, they have no type of voter education for the seniors or anything. So we, the Texas Coalition of Black Democrats, is coming up with an actual program where we can go in and target the, the, the 18-year-old high school student that is eligible to vote. When I tell you we have a fight on our hands here in Texas, and so what we have to understand and what we instill in our children is that we have to continue to fight because the work that Dr. King has done in 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 reference to our voting rights and things like that, we have to make sure that that stuff is not done in vain. What they are trying to do, they're trying to change the whole political landscape by suppressing our vote. And that's why we have to fight. That's why we have Commissioner Ellis. That's why we have State Rep. Ron Reynolds. I mean, it's a whole gang of us, but we have to stay steadfast with these Republicans because they are doing a lot of divisive things here in Texas. Mm. You know, what, what do we have to have a multi-pronged approach, Attorney Jones, to, I mean, to, to really saving the vote? Because I don't think, I think so many laws, most of the states have now passed, uh, passed voter suppression laws, and we really don't pay attention until it's an election, and particularly a presidential election, which we're, we're walking into right now. What, lay out a plan for us, I mean, you know, as we look at Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King's work, um, which was to secure the vote. I mean, and, and, you know, when you look at the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, I'm no legal scholar, but I do know these so-called slavery amendments, uh, giving us our freedom, giving us our citizenship, also they tied into that giving us the right to vote. Why is citizenship freedom and the right to vote. Why do you think that they're tied together, Attorney Jones? Well, you know, they're all tied together uh, by this, by that mutual thread, uh, because of for this reason, the the, the quintessential right 
uh, of a citizen in the United States is that right to vote. Imagine this. You know, there, there is no right, I believe, more essential than the right to vote. The right to vote is what gives you the ability uh, to have a voice in what our democracy should look like. That, 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 that's, the, that's the pencil of it. That, that's the whole meaning of it. That's the, you know, that's the top of it, is having uh, a democracy, is having everyone's voice heard, having an election, and having the election, you've got to vote in the election for the will of the people to be heard through the vote. And so anytime we have anything that affronts the, uh, an individual's right to vote, it is an affront on the freedom of expression, the freedom of thought, the freedom of being able to voice yourself, the freedom of speech, because that's what your vote is. It is your way of speaking. So they're all tied together because, you know, it's the citizens that have the ability to make the determination as to what our democracy is to look like. And that's why it all comes together uh, with that right to vote. And, you know, and as Sister uh, Candace was, was just saying down in Texas with their Senate Bill 1 that they, that they passed that, you know, uh, was suppressing the vote down there, right? Uh, they, were, they, they had their drive-by voting where people could stay in their cars and, and cast their ballots. And then they had the Texas legislature that then came in and said, we're going to undo all of that. We're going to make it more difficult. We're not going to make it easier for you to be able to access the ability to vote. And all of that is tied together in, in, in our democracy in that we need to be promoting ways for people to be able to access the vote. You know, what Texas did originally and saying that before you graduate from high school or, or when you turn 18 and you're in high school, you're going to be registered to vote. It's going to be the law. And there's penalties for, for, your, uh, for them, for high schools not having students registered to vote. That's where we should be. That, that's the model for what should happen, because that calls for inclusivity. You know, what doesn't call for inclusivity is, is when we have uh, states such as Texas, such as Mississippi, and many other states that deal with, uh, with laws that say when someone's convicted of a felony, they become disenfranchised. They can no longer vote. And we're going to stagger and make it difficult for people to regain that right to vote, and not even, not even let them know that they've regained that right. You know, if, if we say that voting is the essence of citizenship, we're saying that someone who has been convicted of a felony and is back on the streets and has the ability to do everything else, pay taxes, everything else, they're not a full citizen. So that's, the, that's all the uh, intricacies of the 13th, 14th, and 15th uh, round uh, uh, put together, talking about why voting is the quintessential piece to it, is that crown jewel to being able to say, you know, I have a voice and my voice matters. That's how I see that. But you know what? You know what, Attorney Jones, I'm going to throw this at you real quick. Um, mm -hmm. Here in Texas, we have, like, if you're no longer on paper and you have a criminal record, right, a lot mm -hmm. of these people don't know that they can vote. They can literally Absolutely. vote here in Texas. And then the issue is, is that we have so many people that are registered to vote because Texas has 254 counties. We have the most African-Americans in the state of the union in the state of Texas. Mm -hmm. But I'm going to tell you mm -hmm. why a lot of these people don't want to vote and they're registered because of the Republicans with their narrative about voter fraud. So now a lot of these people feel like they vote don't matter. So it's like mm -hmm. we have to go in and do the cleanup like, no. Your vote do matter. Uh, these elected officials work for you. You don't work for them. You have the ability to fire them at the poll. 
And so that's the narrative that we have to put out there because what happens is that it was no system or level of accountability when it comes to dealing with these elected officials. You have some of these elected officials that are come in and want to kiss the babies, want to take all the pictures, and want to tell you everything nice. But then when you pull up their track record and you pull up their campaign reports, you pull up their legislative scorecard and their congressional scorecard, it says otherwise. So that's mm-hmm. why it is important that voter education, that's why it's important that a lot of these political organizations need to be in the communities. They don't necessarily need mm-hmm. to be in the middle class communities. You need to go to the strip clubs. You need to go to the <laughs> trap houses because these people can absolutely. vote. Absolutely. Meet them where they are. You're, you're absolutely right, Dr. Candace. And, you know, Dr. King would say of the uh, of the elected officials that you're talking about that they have a, a high blood pressure for words, but anemia when it comes to the deeds. They want to get that vote. They ain't going to do the work that they're promised our folks that, that, that needs to be done. And you're absolutely right with regards to uh, the uh, formerly convicted felons that uh, don't know that they're able to vote. And, you know, what we what we have found is that there are some close to 18 million formerly convicted felons, felons that are fall under that, not in Texas, obviously, but across the country. And they can make an incredible difference. You know, uh, Reverend Jackson uh, uh, always says and always reminds us that in Texas, there's some 600,000 unregistered black voters that, uh, for whatever reason, are not motivated or or not given opportunity or not informed uh, of of the power of their vote and getting registered and getting involved. So you're 100%, I think, uh, on point uh, with regards to uh, us getting out and getting the word out and letting people know the power that's that's there, that's in their vote, and what they can achieve uh, once they go to the polls and put representatives in place that can best represent their interests. I I think you're 100% on on point with that. You know, we've got a couple of minutes left before we get out of here, before I go to the Go downstairs. I'm at the Marriott Marquis here in Chicago. For those of you who have been looking at the beautiful skyline of Chicago behind me, saying, where is she? Well, I'm at the MLK King Breakfast. Um, of course, the co-chair of, and it, it comes to you from Rainbow Push, the Push Excel program there. Dr. Julianne Malvo and Judge Greg Mathis are the co-chairs of that board. And uh, Cheryl Lee Ralph will be here today. And we are raising money to send our children to college. And um, and it is in that spirit, you know, you had this genius um, attorney, Jones, uh, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, uh, who kept skipping grades in school. He went to the he went to Atlanta University Laboratory School. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant young man. Um, as we look at the thing, you know, we have so many people who are, as we look at all of these unregistered folks, these folks who just, who feel that registering to vote is pointless, voting is pointless. Why don't you make the case to them today in the spirit of Dr. King as we look at his life and work? I mean, it took 95 years for that amendment to get some meat on those bones. That's why you have the Voting Rights Act. That's why gutting it was so devastating because you know, we need, I mean, you've got the amendment to the Constitution, but you still have barriers to voting. When you talk, if you, if you had to convince someone who said they were not going to vote, they didn't want to register to vote, what would you say, Attorney Jones? Well, yeah, in convincing people to register to vote, what I find to be the most convincing piece is to talk to why it's important to them personally, uh, why it's important to them, what it means to them uh, to have elected people that are in positions to stand up for their interests. 
if your interest is the environment and having the environment in place for your children, then you need to have uh, elected uh, officials, elected representatives. They're going to be certain that there's safe water to drink. Uh, if their interest is Flint, Michigan, if their interest is Jackson, Mississippi, where they look and they see what's happening with the dirty water and the difficulty in dealing with the government, it's the elected representatives. It's their power of their vote that can put in place pieces of legislation that will clean the water so that the children there can drink safe water. It's the power of their vote that will put in place educational measures that will teach African-American history and not have it not taught in the critical race theory battle. If they want their children to learn the value of themselves, that power of the vote is what it's about. That's the reason they have to register. You, you're, you can't win the battle if you're not on the battlefield. The only way to get on the field is to be registered to vote. Whatever the interest is of you, whatever your personal interest is, you've got to be registered to vote. You've got to be able to support an elected representative that will lift it up and make it legislation so you can take that victory lap on what's important to you, knowing that you're handing the baton to your child, your grandchild, your niece, your nephew, whatever it may be. Something better than what you've experienced, but the only way to do that is to register to vote, to back a representative that has your interests, is in line with your thoughts. And that's what I would say to that person, Cynthia. Amen. And they had to amend the Constitution, change it, in order to give you the vote. That lets you know just how important it is. Everybody, I love you. I'm leaving a little bit early today. Devin, let's get some music going. I've got to get downstairs for this breakfast. I love you, everybody. God bless you. Happy MLK Day. Think of Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King today. Love you, Dr. Candace. Love you, Daryl. God bless you, everybody. Happy King Day. Happy King Day, bro. Happy King Day. Happy King Day.